This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Dahlia. Gabriel, Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Feeling very energetic for some reason. Uh, we've got a big show coming up later tonight. Have you been protesting for peace in Palestine? Home Secretary James Cleverly has said, you've made your point and you can stop now. More also on the crisis at the MIT after they published what seems to be Israeli propaganda. And if you needed more evidence that the UK rental market is out of control, then we've got one shocking example coming up. Stay tuned for all of that. Straight into our first story. Renting in England is very expensive and very insecure. The reason it's expensive is mainly because we haven't built enough homes and they aren't very well distributed. The reason it's insecure is because England's laws give renters very few rights. In almost all cases, renters sign up to 12-month contracts with their landlords, and outside those contracts, renters can be evicted at any time with only two months' notice. Now, this is what's called a Section 21 notice, and a landlord doesn't need to give any reason for giving you one, which is why it's also known as a no-fault eviction. It all means it's incredibly difficult for renters to gain housing security or to plan too far in advance. And for that reason, the Tories planned to ban no-fault evictions in their 2019 manifesto. We are in 2024 and it still hasn't happened. And two weeks ago, Michael Gove was asked about that on the BBC. You promised in 2019 in your manifesto that you were going to get rid of what's called Section 21, where landlords can evict tenants for no reason. Yes. It hasn't happened yet. Can you guarantee the 11 million renters in this country that you will end this before the general election? Yes, we have a bill. It's gone through its stages in the House of Commons. Um, and that bill does a number of things to help people in the private rented sector, including ending no-fault evictions. Why does that matter, some might ask? Well, it is the case that there are a small minority of unscrupulous landlords who use the threat of eviction either to jack up rents or to silence people who are complaining about the quality of their homes. It's important that we deal with that abuse because the vast majority of landlords do a great job and you need a healthy private rented sector as part of a balanced housing and economy. So it might be four years late, but according to Michael Gove, no-fault evictions will be on the way out. So is there hope for renters? Well, it's not entirely clear. According to the BBC, ministers are discussing watering down no-fault evictions proposals. They say this. About 50 Conservative MPs, some of whom are landlords, have expressed opposition to the bill. They fear that the bill would cause landlords to sell up, reducing the number of rental properties available. A series of draft government amendments to the bill were circulated for approval on a WhatsApp group of Tory MPs concerned about the bill. One of those Conservative MPs told the BBC, agreement seems to have been reached on nearly all points. And they go on to write this. The draft government amendments include putting it in law that the ban on no-fault evictions could not be implemented until an assessment of its impact on the courts had been published by the Justice Secretary. So the issue there, if you have, um, if you end no-fault evictions, then obviously a landlord has to give a reason and before they can evict you, um, the courts will get to decide which of those reasons are fair and which aren't. Presumably, it'll only go to court if there's some sort of dispute, not that sort of every eviction will go to court, but they there will be a lot more cases for them to hear, and they are very underfunded 
at the moment. I mean, the BBC also write this, among the other draft amendments the government is suggesting, um, requiring renters to live in a property for a minimum of four months before they can give notice to end their tenancy um, and allowing hearsay evidence in eviction claims for antisocial behaviour. Um, now, this is quite technical. I'm not too sure about the significance of these particular clauses cited by the BBC, but I'm more certain that giving landlord MPs a veto over a renters' reform bill probably isn't the greatest idea. For more on this, earlier today I spoke to Rebecca Winson. She's a senior organiser with the New Economics Foundation who has spent years campaigning against no-fault evictions. How many years has this bill been like rolling through Parliament? It's been rolling through it forever. And, and what this says to me is it's not so much about the individual amendments that they're, that they're proposing um, should be put in place. It's that the government are still delaying putting this forward. This was a manifesto commitment um, at the last general election. We're now near enough about to have another one. And this still is, is nowhere near past. And it's still being debated by, by MPs and down to the minutiae now, it seems. As a renter, I really want more tenant security than I currently have. Um, the argument that is also put forward by people who, you know, say it might have some downsides or unintended consequences is that if a landlord thinks that they're going to have a tenant for a much longer period of time, they might be less inclined to rent it out to people. So th th they might want to sort of charge higher rent, for example, or um, they might just leave the market and sell up and, and that could increase rents. I mean, how do you respond to people's concerns about unintended consequences here? I think that we have to, to look at what the bill is trying to achieve, which is what I think what I think it's trying to achieve is what I think most of us would agree is like the bare minimum for a decent, decent rental sector. So that is the ability of your landlord to not just be able to, to chuck you out. It's fundamentally like what's at the heart of this is, is no fault evictions. Now, if we've got a housing system in this country that making those tinkerings and, and that like very small um, increase really in the grand scheme of things to tenants protections. If we've got a rental system that can't withstand even the, the, that most basic level of regulation, then we've got a real problem and there is already unintended consequences, I'm, I'm sure. Um, aside from that, I mean, look, like landlords by and large, yes, some of them are selling up, but that's the private rental sector is growing. It's not shrinking. Um, you know, this bill has been, um, people have known about that it's going to come for, for a long time. And, and um, some landlords might have used that to, to sell up. But like also they've by and large sold to other landlords or other private rental properties have, have, have picked up. The reason that rents are increasing is not because the private rental sector isn't big enough. It's because there's no there's not amount of decent regulation and there's there's all sorts of economic crises and, and mortgage crises that are having a knock on effect. But it is not because we are trying to give tenants the like basic rights that most tenants in other parts of, of the world that are comparable have. In terms of why rents are so high at the moment, because I suppose one thing this won't do is it won't decrease rents. So, I mean, I, I'm pretty much with you that this is this is the bare minimum, especially as we've got families now in the private rental sector. You can't have families not knowing where they're going to live in 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 more than 12 months time, right? Because they've got kids going to school, much the kid goes out of the catchment area, whatever, you know, it just seems untenable to me. But this won't do anything for rent levels, really, unless you're already in a tenancy. And I suppose I wanted to maybe unpack a bit why you think renting is so expensive at the moment because that will obviously sort of have some 
uh, implications as to how this can be fixed? The first thing I'd say that it's not just at the moment. Um, you know, I rented uh, since I was eight. So I've rented for all of my adult life. Like I was renting since I was 18. And um, rent has always been um, something that I can't really properly afford to pay, um, you know, even 18 years ago. Um, and it's gone through the roof so dramatically recently because there's been, um, there's you know, some landlords have, have been, they would say, forced to do it because their mortgage payments are going up. Um, I think that there's there's sort of other things that landlords are anticipating they're going to need to meet costs for and they're, they're raising rent accordingly. But also there is just a sense of a bit of, of profiteering here. Like we've all heard the anecdotal evidence of um, estate agents getting in touch with landlords and telling them that they can raise the rent and they'd recommend doing that. There's also quite a lot of polling and um, NEF did some recently that shows that like a lot of a lot of people are um, are ending up paying more than they're asking rent um, just because they're being played off against other tenants in order to get the property. But fundamentally, like the reason why there is um, a, a massive shortage of affordable rents in this country is because we do not build enough social housing and we are still selling off the social housing that we've got. Um, if there were more social homes available to, to people, to families um, in the UK, then we wouldn't have this um, uh, situation that we've got where uh, people can't afford to, to keep a roof over their heads. We'd also just need more homes in general, right? Because obviously, you know, if, if you take homes out of the private rental sector and, and make them into social homes, yeah, the rent will go down, but then you know, you, 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 you'll still have more people wanting... I feel like we we just need more homes in general as well, as well as more social homes. I mean, would you sort of concur with that? This is not just a case of like, if we build an extra 200,000 homes a, a year, the, the problem will be solved. We're already building about 200,000 homes a year in this country. It's gone up and down over the last few years because of the pandemic, but that's on average what it is. The problem is that not enough of those homes are affordable. So if you're not meeting the demand there is, the demand isn't for four bed executive townhouses or student accommodation or like, um, you know, high rise flats that are left empty. The demand is for affordable homes that people can either afford the mortgages on or afford the rent on. And we're not building enough of them. So the demand is always going to be high for those things because there's not enough of them. So build more. Yes. But it's like build of build more of what? Like I don't want to personally see us just double the the type of homes we're building at the moment, which are serving no one's needs, frankly. Yeah, I suppose they're only serving no one's needs if they're if they're empty. So it's, it's always been unclear to me sort of how many empty homes there are in London, because it's very difficult to tell. The official statistics sort of shows it to be very low, sort of to be sort of two, two to four percent, I think. But then you're never sure if someone who's very wealthy owns a flat and sort of only visits it once a week. I mean, I'm often looking at sort of tower blocks and trying to work out which lights are on and which lights are off. It's, it's something that I find somewhat mysterious. Um, I suppose my worry, I mean, I'm, as I say, I, I, I think having tenancies which aren't just 12 months long is, 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 is necessary. I think that's a bare minimum um, for me. I mean, one thing I am worried about, though, I suppose, is I actually think landlords are a slightly easier target than other groups, namely homeowners. I think the way that you would actually get rents to fall, as opposed to just making renting a bit more tolerable, but still expensive, is either to tax property properly so that people don't overconsume houses. So you don't have sort of two people in a four bedroom house um, or um, 
massively increasing the number of, of homes and then you've got some problems with NIMBYs. Um, so I suppose, do you worry that sort of the big package that we need to do to make housing affordable would actually really upset homeowners so it never gets done? And what we do do is sort of change things by the margin, which is this, the number of, uh, of landlords that there are. And then we could end up in this mess whereby it just ends up harder um, to, to rent a house than it was beforehand. There are very few housing policies from the big stuff like taxation to the smaller stuff like this to the sort of headline stuff around ending right to buy, for example, that on their own would solve the problem. This is not a case of like, there's no magic button. Like the housing system in this country is so screwed that it is going to take, like it's, you know, I grew up in social home, in social housing. When I grew up, it was fairly like, common for people to be able to get a, a council house. That's now been decimated. It's taken my lifetime for that to be decimated. It will probably take my lifetime for it to be fixed um, because it is such a mess. I think there is a risk um, as campaigners and the policies that we're prioritising as a country aren't enough, then yes, they could have the unintended consequences of making things worse. However, I think you have to sort of view this with a bit of hope that you know, look, I started campaigning for um, for no-fault evictions when I was about 21, 22. If you told me then that there was uh, a Tory government were going to be the ones that would at least try and bring that through, I wouldn't have believed you and neither would anyone else that I was organising with. So we've got to sort of take this not just as like, oh, this bit of legislation's changed, so that's made it, it better, but also like, where are we going to next? Like, that's what we need to keep an eye on. Like, yeah, the renters reform bill comes in. And like you said, that doesn't solve anything. It solves an immediate problem for a lot of people, but it, it doesn't solve everything. So it's like, well, okay, like, then what's next? Then what's next? But fundamentally, like, all of us, anyone in this country concerned about fixing the housing crisis needs to be thinking like big picture, like really big picture, what is needed? Because otherwise... We may, you know, we might do harm, we might not, but we won't really fundamentally change anything. And and to me, staying in the situation that so many people are in at the moment is just intolerable. Like, I don't know how we countenance it as a society. I think that the housing crisis is, it, we should all be ashamed, really. And and certainly the government and the past few governments should be, should be doubly ashamed. That was Rebecca Winson from the New Economics Foundation speaking to me earlier today. Um, we've got more on this theme. If you were still in any doubt about the state of the UK rental market, LBC has a good story on its website at the moment. Mother rents out London room for £400 per month, but tenant must babysit children every day and move out on weekends. Um, you can see the advert here. Um, so the room doesn't look particularly fabulous to be paying £400 plus working three hours a day um, as a babysitter from 3 to 6pm on weekdays. Um, and then the advert also asks you ideally to move out on the weekends. Dahlia, would you accept that deal? I mean, what is so striking about this is that obviously like the setup that she's kind of describing isn't even, isn't new in a certain sense and that what she's describing would typically be the responsibilities associated with being, you know, a live-in au pair. The difference, of course, is that live-in au pairs 
are expected to, you know, they get room and board in exchange for, you know, light housework duties. And, you know, I would argue that au pairing itself is quite an exploitative um, relationship. But the idea when you're an au pair is that you don't pay in order to look after someone's kids. You get free room and board and you get pocket money. And yet here you're seeing almost the reversal of that, which is that you are paying what previously you would have been paid to do. Um, which kind of shows you quite how upside down and topsy-turvy the entire economy um, has has gone. And I think it's actually quite indicative of something that is more, more that I'm noticing more broadly. You know, I'm increasingly noticing, particularly in things like, uh, you know, um, sort of creative industries from, you know, advertising to theater, to art, to music, that previously things that you would have had maybe a paid internship, you know, a kind of entry level um, work to get your foot into those kinds of industries um, that you would have, yeah, had a paid internship to do increasingly is becoming something that you have to pay in order to do that either is unpaid or you have to pay to do courses that help you get a foot into that industry. And that kind of pay to play economy um, is not just something that is specific to this one advert, but it is kind of a broader trend. And it's so funny to me that it is so counter to what we were always told was going to happen, which was that, you know, free markets and all of this would kind of open up opportunities. And this this idea that you can come from nothing and make something of yourself if you work hard enough, it's going in the exact opposite way. It's like, it's actually harder and harder to find consistently paid work. And increasingly you're having to exactly do this, pay to play in order to participate in, you know, the economy, even as, as a worker. Um, but I would say, and you know, I'm not going to defend this landlord, but what's interesting about this one incident is that you have kind of two crises coming together and creating this sort of hideous baby, um, which is you have this housing crisis, which is that people are increasingly desperate and increasingly um, willing to accept these extremely exploitative conditions in exchange for housing and are very vulnerable to this kind of predation. Um, but you also have the childcare crisis, which is that, you know, families with small children are not finding sustainable and affordable solutions to their childcare. And so they're resorting to these, you know, I mean, this is way too far, but they're resorting to quite exploitative relationships um, in order to replace the fact that they don't have access to that proper childcare. So you kind of have this Frankenstein outcome um, of two crises that are essentially based on the fact that increasingly trying to access the basic things you need, like good housing, um, you know, like childcare so that you can go and do whatever it is you're doing, you know, go and work or whatever, that these two things are have moved from being essentials to to luxuries that that very few could afford. I think that comparison to to sort of internships in the media and is is, is a useful one because I mean people have been saying this for a very long time and it's it's absolutely true that it, you have to be wealthy to get into many industries now because you might have to work for a while um, unpaid or on very low pay and then the only way you can afford to live in the kind of big city that you need to live in to, to get into that industry say journalism is with money from your your parents right because you won't have time to both do your unpaid internship and do work on the side and make a success of of both let's say now this not only applies to being an au pair but you have to pay to be an au pair like so so either this is going to be some real rich person or this parent wants this person to go out to work in the morning and come back and look after their kids in the 
afternoon, all while paying them £400 a month. Very, very strange. Another strange story. Well, not strange. This is more outrageous, I should say. Um, According to the BBC London, councils are spending £90 million a month on homeless temporary accommodation. Uh, That cost is up 40% compared to last year and poses a bankruptcy risk for local councils. It's a big story at the moment. Many, many local authorities at risk of bankruptcy or have already um, essentially declared bankruptcy, such as Birmingham. Um, And it's costs such as these, as well as funding cuts, that are really causing that squeeze. Of course, this story also reflects the disastrous state of London's housing market. This is from the BBC again. Since 2010, the number of London households in temporary accommodation has almost doubled from 36,000 in March 2010 to 63,000 in September 2023. That's according to London Council's latest data. The main causes are thought to be the fast-rising cost of living and turbulence in London's private rented sector, alongside the shortage of affordable housing. This is an example of so much that is wrong in you know, politics at the moment in this country and that's been wrong in, in policy in this country for, for, for a while. Right, which is that you've you've got this situation which doesn't work for anyone, apart from maybe a few landlords who rent out presumably poor quality temporary accommodation, right? Because this is a disaster for ordinary people who instead of potentially, you know, these people who are now in temporary accommodation, presumably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, would have been offered a council home. Right? And they'd have been offered a council home. That council home, the council would have had to have paid for in the first place to build it but then they would be getting a steady stream of income from that person. Might be paid for by sort of central government housing benefits, but the council would be getting a steady stream of income from that council tenant. What's happened? Well, because of Thatcher, they had to sell off all those council homes. Now they don't have any council homes. They lose that stream of income. But not only do they lose that stream of income, now when people are in housing need, they have to go and pay loads of money to private landlords in temporary accommodation. By the way, I think sometimes they are, Um, renting out former council homes. So you have the really ridiculous situation where the council is renting back a house that it sold off 20 years ago on the cheap um, and is now paying an extortionate amount every month to a private landlord for a not very good service. You know, loads and loads of families living in temporary accommodation, very difficult to make plans into the future because you don't know how long you're going to be there. So it's just, it's incredibly expensive for the state, very, very unsatisfactory for ordinary people who are using the service, in this case, housing, Um, And the only people that benefit are essentially a fairly parasitic group in society, landlords, right? And in this case, the the kind of landlords that rent out loads of temporary accommodation, which I don't think is going to be the most, let's say, well-meaning part of, of that sector, which is already problematic to begin with. Let's go on to our next story. The New York Times is America's paper of record. It's hugely influential among liberals across the world, and its brand is a byword for respectability, reliability, and honest reporting. But now, a scandal is breaking out in its newsroom over a story it published in December. Now, the story concerned is this. Screams Without Words was an investigation claiming to uncover details that showed a pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality perpetrated against Israeli women by Hamas militants on October the 7th. That report was hugely influential. It was cited by many to justify Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza. But there were immediately a fair few problems with it. Now, it turned out that some of its interviewees had been misled and misrepresented. Other witnesses had given evidence which was inconsistent with previous interviews they'd given to the press. And I think 
Most significantly, inferences were made that couldn't really be justified by the evidence assembled. So they've got some evidence of, yes, um, potentially really horrific events, but then they try and say this was completely systematic. The evidence even in the article didn't really um, justify that. Now, as we discussed in a previous show, the standards in the article were so poor that the New York Times' own podcast, The Daily, refused to run a version of the story after protests from its own journalists. And now the controversy around this story has gotten even worse because of revelations about the journalists behind the report. Now, those journalists were Jeffrey Gettleman, Anna Schwartz, and Adam Seller. Now, Gettleman is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He has experience and stands by the story. But he did raise eyebrows when he said this about the piece after the controversy emerged. He interviewed almost 200 people over the course of two months. And what we found, I, I don't want to even use the word evidence because evidence is almost like a legal term that suggests you're trying to, to prove an allegation or prove a case in court. That's, that's not my role. Um, we all have our roles, and, and my role is to, is to document, is to present information, is to give people a voice. The headline was how Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October the 7th, right? So that, that sounds like you were coming to a conclusion, and to come to a conclusion, normally you need evidence. So yeah, that w many people thought that was a somewhat strange intervention. As for the other two authors, one is Anat Schwartz. She's an Israeli filmmaker based in Tel Aviv. Um, she was the second reporter on Screams Without Words. And yet she appears to have no real prior experience as a journalist, with the New York Times first hiring her in October. Now, Schwartz also reportedly served in an IDF Air Force intelligence unit when younger. And just days before the New York Times hired her in October, she liked this post on Twitter from an Israeli radio present. Now, the first highlighted part says, turn the strip into a slaughterhouse. If a hair falls from their head, execute security prisoners, violate any norm on the way to victory. The second highlighted part calls Palestinians, quote, human animals. Schwartz also liked posts repeating Israel's now completely debunked 40 beheaded babies claims. After Schwartz's bias was revealed, she deleted her Twitter account. And according to Israeli site Ynet News, she is being investigated by the New York Times. So what about the third author of the piece? Maybe he could add some extra credibility? Well, he's this guy, Adam Seller. Before October the 16th, he had never written for the New York Times either. Um, he had, though, written articles for other outlets. So was his expertise investigative journalism or sexual violence? Well, no, he wrote mostly about food and drink. This was from October the 5th last year, inside Palestine's Oktoberfest, a beer-soaked oasis in a conflicted region. Now, it also turns out that Anat Schwartz, um, so that's the second journalist we just talked about there, is his aunt. Um, in response to the scandal, the New York Times has now released this statement about Schwartz. We are aware that a freelance journalist in Israel who has worked with the Times has liked several social media posts. Those likes are unacceptable violations of our company policy. We are currently reviewing the matter. Dahlia, I saw on, on Twitter the other day, someone was sharing a story about a Palestinian who had been working at the New York Times, who had sort of said on a previous episode of The Daily, I think this is too wishy-washy, you know, you're not putting forward the proper context that this deserves. And they said, oh, you probably shouldn't work on this episode because you're Palestinian. Now, it seems like you can be very, very much biased in the other direction and still get to, you know, this is not just any old report or any old podcast. This was sort of the key 
big article put out by the New York Times that week, really. Very, very heavily promoted by a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. As we talked about before, um, the standards of proof in the article already seem somewhat weak. And now it turns out that one of the key authors has been liking, I mean, what I can only describe as, I mean, sound like fairly genocidal posts, really, don't they, on Twitter? Yeah, and I mean, it's a perfect encapsulation of the ways in which procedures get weaponized against certain people and and not and barely applied to 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 others for all the reasons that you've outlined michael you know the fact that this story was able to get to the front page of the new york times in this during this incredibly volatile and sensitive moment where it was genuinely going to help shape the re- responses in the real world this was not just some opinion piece nestled on the 17th page of the New York Times. This was a front page investigative piece, which carries with it a very different uh, set of assumptions and implications regarding credibility and trustworthiness than something that is obviously pitched as an opinion piece. The fact that this was able to get to this position required for so many norms to be in sequence suspended from the fact that we have lack of uh, um, cross-referencing and corroborating sources, lack of fact-checking sources, the embellishing of the, the portrayal of certain sources. And that's before you even get to the fact that two of these two of the three authors do not have any track record in investigative reporting, which you would not expect someone to normally go from having no track record in a particular line of work to having the jewel in the crown of that line of work. If you are an investigative reporter, having a front page investigation on the New York Times is like a career high. And for someone to go from zero to 100 in that way it's suspicious, right? And so we know as people who work in media, who work in broadcasting, that so many of these norms were suspended that normally, you know, if you're going to have someone take a kind of prize position in the newspaper in this way, that editors will do a cursory background social media check, that if it's an investigative piece, there will be an expectation of at least the, 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 the impression of neutrality or the impression of objectivity and the you know the 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 merit of those terms as descriptors put aside there is at least a sense of of that you know those kind of background checks would have been done and so the fact that those were suspended in this particular instance it tells us two things i think it really speaks first of all to this question of credibility and who is seen as inherently credible and reliable narrators of what is currently happening in Palestine. And the way in which Israeli voices, particularly, and not even all Israeli voices, Israeli voices that toe a particular line are seen as inherently credible, whereas Palestinians of almost all stripes are not seen as credible narrators of the things that are happening to them. And not even that kind of lack of credibility um, doesn't even just apply to Palestinians. It even applies to some of the most credible institutions, you know, like the UN, for example, which when they have come to the same conclusions that, say, you know, the Palestinian movement has come to around 
Israel being an occupier, around this being, you know, having shape, having, you know, incredibly a genocidal campaign, that the fact that they reach those conclusions leads for their credibility to be undermined and to be drawn into question. You know, when I'm when I've been reading the way in which certain accusations are taken for granted, whereas other accusations or other, you know, well-documented reports and evidence is, is when it reaches particular conclusions are almost overnight cast aside. I can't help but think about the difference between what's happened here and, you know, the fact that UNRWA, which is, you know, a UN agency, which is supposed to be an institution that has a kind of de facto credibility, how the entire reputation of that organization was called into question overnight on the basis of accusations, of uninvestigated accusations. And the credibility was called into question at a huge cost. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, the credibility of individual people and the impact that that might have on their careers. We're talking about an organization that essentially functions as a government for Palestinian refugees that is responsible for providing essential services being attacked and collapsed overnight. And so this question of the frankly racist applications of credibility come to come to bear here. But also I think another thing that comes to bear as well is the kind of the contradictions and the hypocrisy that's really coming to fruition right now, that's coming to the surface right now, which is that on the one hand, these big Western institutions and governments make their claim and justify their claims of power on the basis of moral superiority and on the basis of holding these morally superior values like universal human rights. And yet their political, geopolitical interests and their economic interests rely on consistently undermining those very rights. And I think this is a perfect encapsulation of this. You know, you have something like the New York Times, which on the one hand, makes its claim of superiority through this kind of reputation of always sticking by these particular procedures and respecting this process and et cetera, et cetera. And yet in order to do the kind of work that a major U of a major US media organization has to at some points, you know, exceptionalize and suspend those norms. And I must say, you know, I am glad it the thing that gives me a slight hope is the fact that, for example, that podcast was never made and the fact that we're seeing that there are these kind of internal struggles within the New York Times as, you know, well-meaning and good journalists and editors are looking around themselves and thinking, what, what institution am I part of? But I think those two things around, you know, credibility and the moments in which these universal norms get suspended and for what reason, um, I think are really neatly encapsulated in this otherwise very horrifying story. Let's go on to our next story. In Britain, we're supposed to enjoy free speech and the right to congregate. Of course, there are well-known limits to those rights centred around hate speech, property damage and violence. But Home Secretary James cleverly thinks there should be another restriction. Namely, protesters shouldn't be allowed to repeat themselves. This is from the Times. According to Cleverly, pro-Palestinian demonstrators have made their point and so should end their protests now. Um, here's what Cleverly told the Times. It is putting a huge amount of pressure onto UK policing, not just the Metropolitan Police, but also other police forces. And the question I ask myself is, what are these protests genuinely hoping to achieve? 
They have made a point and they've made it very, very loudly. And I'm not sure that these marches every couple of weeks add value to the argument. They're not really saying anything new. This is outrageous, right? When this argument is made, you say, okay, if you're finding the demonstrations repetitive, maybe put some pressure on Israel so that they actually stop the genocidal war. It's, it's, it's not just an opinion that people are putting forward. Oh, yes, we're against the, the, the genocidal war. Now we've made our point, right? People are coming out onto the streets every weekend or every other weekend because they genuinely care about this and they're trying to prove their commitment. And I think politicians should wake up and think, if this many people are this committed to this, maybe they've got a point, right? And instead he's saying, we, made you, we get it, we get it. Stay at home now, stay at home. It's like, people will stay at home when you do something, anything, to stop the genocidal war that they are protesting because it is still going on. The Home Affairs Committee recently reported that more than £25 million was spent on policing pro-Palestinian protests between October the 7th and December the 17th. Um, and the Met say policing the marches is draining funds from other aspects of policing. And um, there have been now suggestions um, to make marches more difficult to organise. So the government is proposing to change the rules um, in terms of you know what makes them legal. At the moment, organisers must give the police six days notice of a planned protest. But Policing Minister Chris Philp has now said that may be extended to a fortnight. Um, so you'll, you will need to give more advance warning before having a protest. Dahlia, I mean, I've seen lots of people say this, you know, the number of people going on these demos every other weekend, they have been extraordinarily peaceful, right? Extraordinarily peaceful. I read somewhere that's been maybe 600 arrests. But if you think there's, you know, millions of people probably by now, um, so if you, if you count people going multiple times, right? There've been so, so many people taking to the streets. And these have been incredibly peaceful marches. I have to say, you know, the ones I've been on, and I went on that one that was the biggest one, you know, it's the, probably the biggest march I've been on since Iraq. I mean, definitely the biggest march I've been on since um, Iraq. It was so peaceful. So many, I was just basically surrounded by lots of Muslim families, you know, who had been organized by their mosque. And it was a real, you know, felt like everyone really doing their sort of civic responsibility in a way like not remotely confrontational at all. And this is being, you know, completely now, now castigated as, as either sort of boring now, we get it, or as a threat by extremists that make London impossible to go to for certain ethnic minorities. I mean, how do you possibly respond to this? I mean, it, it's just patently absurd. And I think it's, you know, what's so funny to me about it and is that, James Cleveley is is unwittingly touching on something that I think a lot of people are feeling right now, which is that ultimately you can pull at every democratic lever that you have. You know, you can call your MP, you can write to your MP, you can do boycotts, you can march every week, you can, you know, do all these different things. You can like respond in polls, you know, 71% of of Brits have said that they believe that there probably or definitely should be a ceasefire. Like you can do everything to express to your government that the majority of people do not consent to their current actions and want a change, a change of course. And yet your rule, the ruling parties will turn around and just say nothing essentially. And will not only refuse to change course, but will actually double down in doing exactly what it is that people are 
you know, don't want them to do. And it's, it's just, I think a lot of people are learning a really hard lesson about the way in which democracy, where democracy stands right now, because it's like, it's just, it just goes, you know, what James Cleveland is saying is like, yeah, yeah, we get the message. We get what you, you're saying. We get what you want. And we're just not doing anything about it. So can you just stop? Because it's a waste of your time and it's a waste of our time. Like it doesn't really put a huge, restore a huge amount of faith in the democratic processes in this country. And so not only does it demonstrate James Cleveland's, you know, contempt for democracy and contempt for um, the way that people in this country feel about this issue. And I also think he's him and a lot of other people are probably really confused. I think they thought they had succeeded in making solidarity with Palestine a marginal issue or an issue that most people don't really care about or even an issue that people are, are is very stigmatized. And yet, it's clear that that hasn't worked because I have never seen since probably anti-apartheid. I mean, obviously I wasn't alive at the time, but I can't think of any other cause since um, the anti-apartheid um, protests against South Africa and the anti-apartheid movement against South Africa, something that has so consistently mobilized over a really long period of time, such a huge segment of the population. And I think, you know, they're probably super confused. They're probably like, why do so many people seem to really care about this part of the world that is far away that, you know, we put so much work into stigmatizing, that we put so much work into making people feel afraid to speak up on. And yet that human spirit is kind of enduring. And so I can imagine that it's incredibly frustrating to see that that kind of state practice has not worked. Um, so it really does speak to that contempt for democracy, but it also speaks to this extremely immature way of understanding politics. It just goes to show that like, as it, for this certain class of people, politics is really just about parlor games, exchanging of speech acts, exchanging opinions, and then going home and not thinking about it anymore. Whereas for the rest of us, Politics, and particularly politics when it comes to a genocide, is so deeply tied to a material reality and our deep sense of who we are. And so it's not just the kind of thing that we, you know, turn up, say our opinions, exchange a few words, and then go home and stop thinking about. And I think that that's really where the disconnect between the James Cleverleys of the world and actually the rest of the people in this country, you know, so many people in this country who are like, this isn't just about me getting my voice heard. This isn't just about me like expressing an opinion. This is about me trying to mobilize to change something because I am acutely aware that thousands of lives are on the line here and that moves me in a deep way. But that sense of being staked in politics for that kind of reason is clearly very alien um, to someone like James Cleverley. Let's go to our final story. And I have to say, we're talking about the terrible response of British politicians to the movement um, against a genocidal war. We aren't the worst. Um, we are going to go to one of the worst now. A film made by four young directors, two Israeli and two Palestinian, has won Best Documentary at Germany's Berlinale Film Festival. It's a prestigious prize. And this was the moment that two of those directors, Israeli Yuval Abraham and Palestinian Barzel Adra, went on stage to accept it. I want to say we are, we are standing in front of you now. Me and Basel are the same age. I am Israeli, Basel is Palestinian. And in two days, we will go back to a land where we are not equal. I am living under 
a civilian law in Basel is under military law. We live 30 minutes from one another, but I have voting rights. Basel is not having voting rights. I'm free to move where I want in this land. Basel is, like millions of Palestinians, locked in the occupied West Bank. This situation of apartheid between us, this inequality, it has to end. Very, very powerful call for equality. And it may be hard to believe that that call for equality has now led to outcry in Germany and Israel. The day after the speech, the Israeli ambassador to Germany called the entire festival into question, saying this, Once again, the German cultural scene showcases its bias by rolling out the red carpet exclusively for artists who promote the delegitimization of Israel. At the Berlin Ali 2024, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel discourse was met with applause. It appears the lesson from Documenta hasn't sunk in. Under the guise of freedom of expression and art, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel rhetoric is celebrated. You don't need seven professors to state the obvious. This is blatant anti-Semitic discourse. Cultural so-called leaders, your silence is deafening. It's time to raise your voices and reject this grotesque charade. Act now or forever be part of this shameful legacy. And the mayor of Berlin also chimed in with this. What happened yesterday at the Berlin Ali was an intolerable and relativization was an intolerable relativization. Anti-Semitism has no place in Berlin, and that also applies to the art scene. I expect the new management at the Berlin Ali to ensure that such incidents do not happen again. In Israel, Channel 11 aired that same 30-second clip of Yuval Abraham's speech, except underneath it, um, they displayed the Chiron, the Israeli filmmaker's anti-Semitic speech. That was not an anti-Semitic speech, right? Now, the reaction might not just be about the content of Abraham's speech. Of course, the film that he, Adra, and their two co-directors made is called No Other Land. It documents the relationship between Adra, a member of a Palestinian West Bank community that the IDF are trying to displace to make way for settlers, and Abraham, an Israeli journalist who tries to help. That story of Palestinian-Israeli cooperation and friendship is a pretty challenging one for Zionists, and the hysteria around it has led to direct consequences for Abraham too, who said this on Twitter. A right-wing Israeli mob came to my family's home yesterday to search for me, threatening close family members who fled to another town in the middle of the night. I am still getting death threats and had to cancel my flight home. This happened after Israeli media and German politicians absurdly labelled my Berlin Ali ward award speech, where I called for equality between Israelis and Palestinians, a ceasefire and an end to apartheid, as anti-Semitic. The appalling misuse of this word by Germans, not only to silence Palestinian critics of Israel, but also to silence Israelis like me who support a ceasefire that will end the killing in Gaza and allow the release of Israeli hostages, empties the word anti-Semitism of meaning and thus endangers Jews all over the world. As my grandmother was born in a concentration camp in Libya and most of my grandfather's family was murdered by Germans in the Holocaust, I find it particularly outraging that German politicians in 2024 have the audacity to weaponize this term against me in a way that endangered my family. It goes on. But above all else, this behavior puts Palestinian co-director Basel Adra's life in danger, who lives under a military occupation surrounded by violent settlements in Masafayata. He is in far greater danger than I am. If this is what you're doing with your guilt for the Holocaust, I don't want your guilt. Dahlia, I mean... The Germans are really making fools of themselves on this particular issue. And I think that response from Yuval Abraham couldn't be more powerful. I mean, it's been utterly mind-boggling um, to, to watch. I think, you know, I mean, there's a very interesting kind of thing happening um, where, you know, particularly Berlin uh, has become over, you know, the German state has put a lot of work into trying to make 
Berlin in particular be this kind of hub for cultural and art workers um, around the world, which it's kind of done through these very generous state subsidies and creating an economy where basically it's possible, it's one of the few places where it feels possible to kind of make art and work as an artist and sort of materially survive. And yet now um, it's kind of crumbling under the contradiction of the fact that despite trying to become that safe haven, it's fundamentally intolerable of divergence and plurality. There's no word to describe how obscene it is for the German state to be telling the, uh, the you know, a, a descendant of Holocaust survivors what is and is not anti-Semitic. I mean, it's it's absolutely it it it's mind-boggling. And what it shows me is that Germany has still not rid itself of the arrogance and the white supremacy um, that leads it to believe that it should legislate over the basic rights of life and de of death of certain groups of people. And I think that the reference there to guilt, um, when he says, you know, if this is what you do with your guilt, I don't want it. It speaks to that extremely superficial way in which Germany and frankly, the rest of Europe has engaged and understood um, the politics of Nazism and the politics of the Holocaust and understanding, instead of seeing it as this kind of moment where Europe just lost its mind, but rather not seeing it as the outcome of a kind of or like rules-based, deeply hierarchical, deeply racialized politics that relies on constantly having a constitutive outside, that constantly re relies on having a racialized outsider that it uses to define itself and that it uses to practice its state violence on. It never actually was able to reckon with that. And so now we see it reproducing that politics and speaking over the people that it claims to be doing this in the name of in order to exact that politics. And to give a bit of context as well on where kind of Germany is, you know, Germany, like a lot of the rest of Europe, is currently experiencing a resurgence of the electoral far right. You know, the AFD is the second most highest polling party in Germany right now. And a lot of German liberals are looking at this with horror and thinking, how could this possibly happen? You know, and, and, and very confused by why this is the case. And instead of looking inwards and thinking, what is it about our scapegoating and highly racialized politics that has led to this form of, of politics resurging? in our country. Instead of doing that, it has decided to externalize it and make it an outside problem. You know, it's a Muslim problem. Um, you know, Muslims are bringing their savage and backwards ways of being and importing this kind of far right or kind of anti-Semitic politics back into Germany. And it's an, it's a shocking like abdication of responsibility for one's own problems and one's own contradictions that is not only it, it's like and it's it's obviously being particularly coming to the fore in Germany but I think it is also something that is being experienced throughout Europe and I can you know the only kind of um uh the only kind of example that I can think of um that is it, it kind of reminds me of a form of pink washing where you know in order to to like 
basically justify racist and scapegoating politics. You use this idea of like, oh, we're going to fight for queer rights by criminalizing and targeting communities that we view as inherently queer phobic. And it's like, guys, there is a way of doing politics and a way of like doing so-called progress that doesn't involve victimizing and criminalizing and doing racist violence against a new group of people. And so for me, it's like, on the one hand, it's feels like some like scenes that I could never have imagined I would see. And yet on the other hand, it is an out quite a predictable outcome of a failure of Europe to understand what the kind of underlying logics and politics have led to this constant attachment to this racist outsider politics, this need to constantly create this racialized outsider against what against whom you define yourself. Um, yeah, I don't know how this is possibly going to end. I don't know how that German cultural minister, you know, goes back and looks at herself in the mirror at the end of the day, knowing that she's sort of like telling Israeli filmmakers that they are anti-Semitic. I mean, it's insane, but like the, the knots that they kind of tie themselves into to do this. But this is the, this is a, a kind of a failure to seriously reckon with their history and instead to externalize it and push it out onto others um, is a very, very dangerous path. It gets even more insane, right? Because Germany's stance on speech that's critical of Israel or supportive of Palestinians is clearly bizarre and authoritarian. And this is just such a clear illustration for you of how it's also become completely absurd. Now, after Yuval Abraham and Basil Adra collected their award at the Berlin Ali, so that's um, Germany's Bild newspaper published this story. So Berlin Ali, scandal, says the headline. Then here they're clapping for anti-Israel speech. So that's the headline that Bild gave it. And there are two blurry faces inside red circles. Now those faces belong to Germany's Commissioner for Culture, Claudia Roth, and Berlin Mayor Kai Wegner. Roth in particular has come under pressure for applauding, with some saying it shows her endorsing anti-Semitism. And in response to those accusations, Roth has said this. She claimed she was only clapping for the Israeli filmmaker and not for the Palestinian director who was standing right next to him. She has said her applause, quote, was directed at the Jewish-Israeli journalist and filmmaker Yuval Abraham, who spoke out in favor of a political solution and a peaceful coexistence in the region. Now, Abraham actually referred um, to Israeli apartheid, right? So it was Yuval Abraham's speech that seems to have caused so much controversy. So it's unclear what Adra said that could have caused more offence. He referred to Palestinians being, quote, slaughtered, right? But I'm not really sure how what he said is going to be different from Yuval Abraham's. It's very, very strange that sort of in aid of anti-Semitism, you have this minister of culture who has stood up and said, oh, no, 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 no. The, the, the film may have had two directors, one of them Israeli and one of them Palestinian, but I was only clapping for the Israeli. You know, I was specifically clapping in this direction, not in that direction, while sort of making sure that I couldn't see the Palestinian. I was clapping the Israeli. It's just nonsense. I mean, it sounds obviously racist. You can make up your own mind if it is. I think the idea that you're only clapping someone from, you know, one ethnic background and not the other, to me, sounds pretty racist. Um, very, very ridiculous in any case. Uh, let's wrap up there, Dahlia. Um, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me, Michael. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. 
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.